Welcome to In Loving Recollection. This is your pal Brent. From what I've been told my entire life, there was a pretty terrible snowstorm on the day that I was born. Now I do recognize that this was Georgia, and probably not to the degree that residents of the North and Midwest usually experience, but as far as Southern standards go, the trip my parents took from Noonan to the hospital in LaGrange was apparently a pretty unpleasant one. Around this same time the year before, the Atlanta metro area experienced a much harsher winter storm, dubbed Snow Jam 82, where people got stranded on the interstate. So I assume the memory of that particular storm, and the fact that my mom was about to have me, probably had some effect on everyone's stress levels. But regardless, this was the state of the natural world at the moment that I entered it as my most pure and innocent self. And I think because of this, I've always felt a deeper connection to colder weather, especially snow. Perhaps I'd feel differently about it if I lived in a region where snow is more common, but as a Georgian, where mugginess envelops the state the vast majority of the time, snow for me feels like this rare and magical occurrence that seems to always come when I need it the most. When my grandfather died in March of 2004, the capstone on a really shitty year, I decided to take a trip to the North Georgia mountains. The house I was staying in was on the shore of Lake Chatoug, and I would often eat my meals in front of a large window that looked out onto the lake with these beautiful views of the Appalachian Mountains in the distance. I was feeling a lot of guilt and sadness around my grandfather's passing. He had suffered from Alzheimer's disease for many years, and because I was naive and young, I was scared of his illness, and as his condition worsened, I kept my distance. On one particular day during my stay in the mountains, a day on which I was feeling especially sad, I was eating my lunch, just staring out the window thinking about my granddad, and all of a sudden, it started snowing. It was really moving, watching these snowflakes gently touch the lake. I think I just really needed something beautiful to look at. It was almost as if my old pal the snow had come back to check on me to make sure I was okay. My grandfather's passing was really the first significant death that I had experienced. He and my grandmother, along with my Aunt Daryl and Uncle Slats, were these really important figures in my life growing up, and they would all eventually pass within a few years of one another. The last to go was my beloved Aunt Daryl, and on the morning of her funeral, I woke up to discover beautiful blankets of snow covering my yard. Once again, my old pal had come back to check on me, to make sure I was okay. Experiencing moments like these have helped me to understand the generosity of nature, which has not always been easy for me as someone whose feet are most often planted in the unnatural world. But I have found as I have gotten older that there is a part of me that yearns for a more consistent connection to the world outside suburbia. And I imagine much of this yearning comes from the inspiration I find in works that evoke the profound and mysterious power of nature, such as Josephine Foster's wonderful record, Blood Rushing. 
I first came to Foster's music through her song, Child of God. I was instantly struck by the familiarity of its sound, a sort of Velvet Underground meets Harry Smith's anthology of American folk music. And then, of course, I heard that voice, this mysterious, otherworldly presence hovering above the sonic space. I remember thinking that whatever album this song appeared on had to be a record for me. So I decided to dive in. I put on Foster's 2012 album, Blood Rushing, and I listened. This is the story of that record. My name is Josephine Foster. I'm a dreamer. I dream a lot. I go upstairs and I ease my cares. Yeah, a dreamer. I'm a dreamer and I dream of you. My record, Blood Rushing, uh, I performed the rhythm guitar and and vocal lead performance and um, 10 songs I wrote. It's a song cycle, you could say. Singer and songwriter Josephine Foster would spend the entirety of her childhood in Colorado, living with her family in various towns throughout the state. It is through her family that Foster would first become interested in music. I started out steamboat Springs up in the mountains, where my mother was a uh, managed a motel on the Yampa River, and um, my father was a sort of uh, did a lot of different odd jobs. Uh, my mom called him a wheeler dealer, <laughs> and he flew a little Comanche airplane, and um, he actually crashed the airplane and died up there in the valley, and so my mom took me down the mountains, and um, we lived a little in Denver, and then finally, when I was about four, we moved to Fort Collins, and uh, we lived with my aunt and my cousins for a while, and then my mom remarried to my new father, and um, so that's where I mostly grew up. My mother was musically inclined and that she liked to sing song snatches which is just you know is not like performing a song or knowing a full song but she would sort of interject little bits of songs that she grew up with and my grandmother too that was a part of the uh, dialogue you know kind of quoting little songs my nana was from the Bronx in New York, and uh, my mom was born out in uh, Jamaica, Long Island, grew up there, and then uh, in the military, they moved around a lot, but songs from the 30s were really big in the, <laughs> in the both their heads, you know, and so little snatches of those would weave into the conversations, and that was something I loved, <laughs> and, you know, picked up on. 
And then um, my other paternal grandmother played a little piano. And um, my first memory of like a more formal gathering of music was at their anniversary there outside Cheyenne, Wyoming. We gathered and I was the youngest cousin in that side of family. And um, they were all in their kind of long hippie dress strumming guitars. <laughs> we sang like an old cowboy song, Eddie Arnold song, I believe. I remember feeling like in the center of all that and all that energy of, I, I, I felt very good. It felt very like this, this feels good. I was like five. So that made a very big early impression in the more formal sense. Um, I started to have a voracious appetite to go to the public library and check out records. You know, they had the vinyl records you could check out. So I did um, really like some certain classical music. I was very drawn to singing and the sound of the early music. Like Henry Purcell was like, I was a big fan. <laughs> and then um, in popular music, I had, since I was younger, I had many different interests. And um, I liked Prince and I liked Cindy Lauper and um, I liked some of the older folkies, you know. I, my dad listened to Neil Young. I liked him a lot. My mom liked Motown. She liked more uh, African American music in general, um, the Platters, Sarah Bond. So it's really it was such a mess. <laughs> it really makes no sense. <laughs> and then just folk music, you know, if any type, I, sounded good to me, raw and good. Eventually, Foster's interest in music would lead to her learning a variety of instruments. Our neighbor had a big old Washburn upright piano, which in fact is here with me now in this little house I'm living in, which is a wonderful reunion with this amazing old piano. And so when that came into the house, I would just improvise little stories at the piano, you know, and start to associate the registers with different feelings and characters and stuff. But I didn't formally study piano. When I was about 12, a neighbor guided me through a book but she wasn't a pianist particularly, just kind of a beginner too. So, um, but then I started getting to choir, and that was a real big deal. I kind of had to choose choir or a stringed instrument. I was really drawn to playing a stringed instrument, but I also couldn't fit it in in the junior high, so I, I decided singing was my biggest passion. But I still tinkered on the piano, and then in high school, a boyfriend helped me... Um, get started with some chords on a guitar, and I got a guitar um, for my birthday, and um, so I started a little bit of songwriting there, and I had a had electronic keyboard, you know, had a little, mm-hmm. couple little bands and stuff, casual, and I um, was just started to write songs. It is also through her exploration of various musical forms that Foster would gain an appreciation for opera and eventually aspire to become an opera singer. You know, when I was younger, doing the choir and started a couple voice lessons, I was very struck by one particular singer I heard 
in a small room, like a salon. My teacher would invite me to these little salons, you know, which I thought were very cool with chamber groups, which is play songs for fun together, little pieces, and read around the piano. But this woman was a very big voice, like a, uh, what you call, like a dramatic mezzo-soprano or something. And um, she sang an aria by Verdi, Giuseppe Verdi, who was a very popular composer in Italy who delivered anthemic pieces to the masses, you know, that were sung in the streets. And, and he was a very, like, I guess you call him a populist. <laughs> but um, but when she sang that and I was in the room, like, I was just mesmerized and I was struck deep in my body. And I think it was a healing energy because it's a vibrational energy. And it was so um, supernatural. And I was like, oh, I would like to have the ability to shake people that deeply. I started out focused on being an opera singer. I became very um, discouraged by the other opera singers. <laughs> I didn't really get along to it. I felt it was very superficial. And I sort of, for a while, lost my ability to sing and my desire. So I started to get more interested in maybe being a writer or a, in, a director, you know, got involved in the theater and felt a little bit more sympathy and congruence in the, that group of friends and students. But then I was like, okay, I'm in Colorado. This is very provincial. Let's try to be an opera singer because I still have this, <laughs> this desire. You know, I was experimenting with different things, and I realized I liked the directness of singing. But I also felt the rigidity of all the structure was very damaging to me, kind of like poisoning my mind and my... I uh, was so imperfect, you know. <laughs> so I was still wanted to try it to, before I gave it up. But I was also just... Um, continuing to write my own songs that befitted me better. With the decision to continue her study of opera, Foster moves to Chicago to attend Northwestern University. It is there that she would begin work on her first record, There Are Eyes Above, which she would self-release in 2000. music teacher and I picked up the ukulele as my old teacher had done when I was in kindergarten and because I really dug how she taught children playing Ella Jenkins and Woody Guthrie and all that so I started to get on the ukulele and I, I realized um, different a different instrument resulted in different choices of chords the, the guitar can be sometimes a little more square 
because of how I started on it, but the ukulele, the old-timey song sounded really good on it. So I brought that ukulele to Chicago, and I started to write songs on it there um, as I was drifting out of the school. And my uh, new boyfriend was like, sort of comes from the punk hardcore <laughs> world, mm-hmm. art school. And he's like, why don't you record yourself? I'm like, I don't know. I You know, I never... Nothing I did ever was about recording. It was always about performing and experience. And so that was very strange to me and, and new. And I thought, well, okay. So um, he lent me his four track and I just made some simple recordings. You can kind of sense that I'm sort of in a weird transition out of opera, kind of with the old timey Tim Pan Alley music that I always loved and also just weird songs. <laughs> so it's a strange record. And uh, in fact, I had been mugged um, before I made the recording and many songs were in this book in my bag that was stolen. And so a lot of those were the only ones I completely remembered because I was sort of prolifically writing at that time beyond what I could recall. <laughs> so then they, I even wrote a song called The Robber Song where I thanked the robber because it kind of impulsed me to start recording and share things and not sit on all these creations, but just move them in the world. Beginning in the early 2000s, Foster would follow up their eyes above with a number of releases both under her name and in collaboration with other artists as well as begin touring throughout the U.S. and abroad. It is while in Spain that Foster meets musician Victor Herrero. Eventually, Foster would relocate to Spain, where she and Herrero would begin both a romantic and musical partnership. Yeah, we met in uh, Barcelona on a tour I did, and um, he had... (laughs) This story is very funny. I haven't really told anybody this story. He um, was living there with his friends, had his own musical project and then one of his friends like oh this girl's playing in town we should go and so he kind of checked it out a review of a record of mine all the leaves are gone and it said she sounds like Enya with the uh, vibrator turned up on high <laughs> something like that <laughs> so funny he's like oh yeah I gotta see this and um so yeah so that night I met him and um Jose who later played drums on our other band and uh, other friends, and, and he came up to introduce himself after the show, and um, he says, I would love to play music with you, and I was, oh, really? Well, play me something. So he sat there, handed him my guitar, and he played, he just improvised the most beautiful thing on the guitar. I was like, wow, yeah, I could play music with this guy, but um, we didn't really talk for months and months, and um but then, yeah, we got back in touch. So, yeah, we had a real lovely romance and and, um, and then moved there and got married. And we were married for some years. He's still a dear friend and a musical ally and collaborator. In 2005, Foster would begin composing the songs and developing the concept for what would eventually become the album Blood Rushing. Underwater Daughter, I wrote that living in Chicago right before I moved because I remember vividly that one because I was sitting under a tree 
in a park near my house on my birthday, and I wrote it thinking of my mother. Then most of the other songs were written in Spain, but definitely they all started to become a little family, you know. I wrote a love note at one point, and it was the start of blood rushing. My name is Blushing. You can hear my blood rushing. And that felt very much like a christening of the, the source of that song. When I first wrote the song Blood Rushing and whatnot, um, different songs I feel channel to the ethers. So sometimes I have felt this persona that, you know, is Blood Rushing is her name. You know, I consider most of these songs from her voice. This is a very personal record in the sense that um, it's sort of semi autobiographical and fictional. Like when I grew up, we didn't travel much, but we would sometimes go to Mesa Verde and different Indian ruins and the ghost town. That was my most interesting travels as a child. And I was very, very interested in all those um, old places. When I was writing this music in Spain, we were living in something, I would say, the closest to a cliff dwelling. <laughs> you can imagine way up in the Grenadine Sierra Nevada there in south Spain. And and it was like a clustered village looking way out towards other villages. And um, I realized how profoundly those villages had been on me and, and a kind of life that I was drawn to which was humans living in a, a cooperative way, living off the land, and um, the human landscape being very small and the wild being very large, like a little oasis, you know. And then you could, and then from that village, I could walk to different villages on these little trails that were, had been made by the Moors expelled from Granada way back in the 1400s or whatever. So, um, which is about the same time as those cliff dwellings were made in <laughs> Mesa Verde, you know. I felt I was sort of time traveling. And I also, um, the the life I wanted to live in the States, it was like time had gone too far ahead. So I had found in Spain this older world that suited me better. And uh, so the subject matter of these is a lot of just... Um, landscaping they're, they're about the sun and the stars and the, and the waterfall and you know the waves and the geyser <laughs> you know very elemental things Following the release of her record This Coming Gladness in 2008 Foster would sign with the British independent label Fire Records Known for releasing early works by Pulp and Teenage Fan Club the label would relaunch in the late 90s and put out records by Guided by Voices, Pier Ubu, and the Lemonheads. I, I guess I'd have a lot of trepidation of the music business and labels. And um, after sort of a rough start on this locust music, which I thought soured and was not a positive experience. And I, this fella, Mark, in the UK, wanted to put out a record 
uh, he had this record label called Bow Weevil. And um, I had actually, just before that, had another sort of soured <laughs> experience. I had signed with Young God and went in the studio to record with Michael and um, with my old band, The Supposed, and the whole thing folded within two hours of yeah. <laughs> disagreement. <laughs> I decided to try that record again. And I tried it again in Chicago, and, and I tried it overseas with with Victor and um, Alex Nielsen. So it finally went in the can there. And but I was like, Mark, uh, you can put this record out, but I do not want any publicity, like zero. <laughs> Which is kind of a nightmare for a label, you know. But he was so respectful, and uh, that that album this coming gladness sort of just slipped by of, of course nobody heard about it and um i think it's an important record for me um but uh i think he was rather bruised by the loss yeah. <laughs> and um he's like you know i think maybe you should try to work with fire because he at that time was working in their office he goes i think they could do a little more for you and they were real enthusiastic. And as I was located in Spain, I was never really socializing a lot with label people. It was all very happenstance. So um, I said, all right. Right away, we're like said yes to some very odd projects, you know, like Emily Dickinson's song settings and the Spanish records. <laughs> like, well, they, they can't be all that bad if they don't really mind these uh, not very um commercial projects you know and so i've they've stuck by me here following the completion of her albums of spanish folk songs 2010's anda haleo and 2011's perlas foster decides to return to the u.s to make her next records eventually she would be introduced to nashville-based producer andrea tokic i met him in Nashville, I was staying with my friend John, and I, an interesting thing about this record is it was recorded in between the beginning and end of recording I'm a Dreamer, kind of concurrently within, I started in the fall on I'm a Dreamer, went to Colorado, recorded this, and then went back and finished I'm a Dreamer. Um, they're very connected, and they're both recorded by him. But uh, my friend John, I was like, I need to try to record some demos. You know, I'm ready to make some uh, some of these songs fleshed out. And um, he just somehow came across a reference to Andrea's little studio very nearby. And so we went over and met him. And he's just like very, you know, useful and spontaneous feeling to to him and his studio and very casual because I had gone to a couple other places in town and it was all a little bit bizarre and I felt pretty at home there so yeah we just started doing doing some demos and I was like oh could you steer me to some musicians I'd like to have a peculiar band for this you know something different than I've ever done so that was for I'm a Dreamer in the meantime this was also on the horizon, so it became clear that he was eager to record anything. 
<laughs> and he was game to drive all the way to Colorado and do it. So yeah, things happened pretty quickly. To create the communal sound that Foster had envisioned for the record, she and Herrero bring in musicians Ben Trimble, Heather Trost, and future Pixies bassist Poslin Chanton, whom Foster had befriended some years before during her time in Chicago. Besides Paz, who you know I'd met 10 years before, Heather I met with her partner talking to Hacksaw. Victor and I had done a few shows out in Israel with them. As a matter of fact, we had a show in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem and uh, became buddies and just in touch thinking, no, oh, maybe collaborate at some time. And um, she's an amazing violinist, just so beautiful. And of course, pauses too. So <laughs> in fact, what I wanted was women from the West. <laughs> from you know California and you know South American as well from Argentina um, and then Heather's a New Mexican and and I just knew there was a certain thing I wanted to imbue the music with a lot of the spacious uh, feeling of the landscape this wonderful drummer that we've been rehearsing there in New Mexico for about a week before recording he he became a little disenchanted with the um, heartbeat, <laughs> you know. So poor fella <laughs> was not suited to this. But um, Ben joined Andrea as an assistant, but he had such a good groove, you know, and he was totally just happy to play this very simple beat and just sit on the floor with the drum. He just wanted to be the foundation of the, the beat. <laughs> which was so critical, you know. The idea is so basic of the blood rushing and the heartbeat, it, it couldn't really be compromised. Sessions for the record would take place at the Cherry Val Art Farm, located in Boulder, Colorado. It was these young folks kind of living in a big old house. You know, people build these, what they call mixed mansions or whatever, and then they're so big, they could house like 10 families, you know. So they basically, these... Um, Younger people uh, dwelled in this larger house together, and they had a big open communal space, which was the old master bedroom, with, which had huge windows and light bathing it. And it, they used it as sort of a yoga studio or a performance space. I think I had performed there once, and I contacted them, and they're like, "Yeah, you can use this space if you if you want." So um, we just needed a big room with a good uh, acoustic and um, so that worked out really good and is very much a master of analog recording and um, so everything I've done with him has been on different analog tapes from a four track and this was I think on a half inch tape and in the studio of course we used the larger tape but uh, yeah he brought a remote machine and uh, some different gear and I, so we gathered there and just sat in the room and almost everything was recorded live in this room in a couple of days. And in the end, they made a record.
Blood Rushing begins with a folk rock inflected track, Waterfall, opening with the sound of Heather Trost's jaw harp, which then gives way to the effortless melding of the track's other instrumentation. Waterfall acts as the perfect introduction to the communal sounds of this record, presenting voices that will permeate throughout the entire album, such as Herrero's dreamy guitar leads, Tremble's steady, pulse-like rhythms, and Foster's lively nylon string guitar strums. you hear is it's a flamenco guitar that I got in Granada, a little um, luthier there. And so it's quite bright and um, pops, you know, pretty brightly like flamenco guitars. But uh, the song Waterfall, I, I wrote the lyrics um, in a village we lived in and I would walk down the village to this other village and there was an old waterworks, you know, not Roman, not that old, but it carried the water and then it creates this little waterfall in a ruin and you could just go in there on a sunny day in the winter even just strip down and just take a take a nice shower. And so it really is a walking song and I wanted that feel that because I would bring my friends when they would visit, I would take them there and we would get a waterfall, <laughs> you know. And um and the words, you know, I walked this far dreaming of a waterfall that my blessed ancestor divined because my mother's roots are from Southern Europe, mostly Italy, but some Iberian and stuff um, and North African. So it felt like living overseas, I was connecting to old parts of my genealogical history in a way that was very fulfilling in the elemental ways that I love. And this is actually a dance piece. You know, I started to realize the whole piece, the whole song cycle is a dance. Every single song is a dance. I would be dancing, you know, when I sing this, like a, it's, it's in the, in the walking way, you know, a walking song. And, um, so, so Heather, plays the jaw harp and, and it's perfect because the jaw harp makes you want to bounce. It makes you it makes you bounce your step and your, it loosens your body and you know and it, it just it was wonderful that she had that. song about courage that you invite the lion into your own heart to drink so I felt sometimes that it's crazy to, to wander so far and so long you know but 
there was a reason, and it was um, just to get to that waterfall. The spaghetti western indebted sound of Panorama Wide is a track that showcases the power of Foster's vocals, as well as an introduction to the important complementary role that violin will play throughout the record. Like I, I can feel the dance come out of this. 
I can see it, everything very, it's incredibly visual. And so the wish to convey the landscape through the broad strokes and through the lyric and um, the Western heritage that we have through playful spaghetti records and westerns, you know, because that's where we were living then when I wrote it was really near where the spaghetti westerns were made, the little Hollywood, you know, so I found it very comical <laughs> to be in the sort of other side of the world where they would try to recreate places where I was from. Featuring a spirited performance which greatly emphasizes the communal aspect of the record, the track Sacred is the Star continues the deep connective tissue that exists throughout all of Blood Rushing in both sound, lyrics, and movement, creating a sense of rapturous abandonment through its sing-along-like nature. The track is held together by the simplistic yet vital presence of Trimble's drumming. We didn't have anything but two big drums. One my dad had gotten at a car show, like sort of a, um, you know, they just sell random stuff on the side of the road. And it was a, a, it's right here in front of me, that drum, painted blue. And then the other was a very big Pueblo drum that we got from where they sell them uh, near Albuquerque. So we were using very simple sounds so this is a sun worshiping song which i feel is pretty straight ahead in the sense that i'm probably like most creatures on this earth just constantly following the sun around you know trying to sit in this pool of light feeling it enjoying it and it's it's um just a reverential song to our star. So that's why it's called Sacred is the Star. And it's sort of a blessing of the sun, telling it to shine on all that who pass and that all our turning is towards it, you know, it, and also that it's sort of the seed of our fire, our small little fires that we make in our earth. while I'll have a melodic idea and I'll sing it, you know, to the guitarist or the... But the middle section of this is something that I had in my head and I used to 
sing it. But la, 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 la. So that is a little bit that I have them reproduce on the violin because it's almost um, part of the composition, really. So, but it's it really um, it's you know we're in our little flesh vessels, but our desire is to sort of break through and and merge, you know. So I think music gives us that feeling, and I think that those instrumental parts sometimes are so important because they're beyond words. It's just the pure yearning for um, union. track Child of God, which initiated my love affair with Josephine Foster's music, is a psychedelic folk gem. It contains gloriously off-kiltered electric guitar, expertly employed backing vocals, and just an incredible amount of mystery and swagger. on the shoulders of so many people who came before in so many senses. The collective memory and the collective unconscious comes out in the music. I wrote these songs in a sense that the songs were channeled through me, you know, and I like to think that Blood Rushing, the Indian woman, channeled them through me, which sounds funny, but it, it really isn't because we live in old Indian grounds, and why shouldn't we acknowledge and honor them and receive the old vibrations if we're open to it? And the best of those cultures are alive if we want to join them, like any cultural thing. And that, I think that is something that this album is trying to honor 
the sacred ground of the people before that I may or may not be blood related to, probably not. <laughs> I would say no, but spiritually, yes, because I'm sitting in the same mountain range. That's significant. Um, but anyway, to get on track, the um, popular music as well is something that goes into your body. Anything you love is stored in you and will manifest in new ways, just like nature is making these new mutations. So I, Child of God came out very easily and sort of intuitively because I think it is a sort of not even my song. You know, it's, it's sort of a song that's just on the family tree. Sometimes I'm very entertained by accidents and the puns and whatnot that come out in the music and the and the idea of child of God being C O G and being a cog, you know, was something that I just tickled me so much, you know. <laughs> in the way you could take it for a negative or a positive. But you know, we are this interlocking chain of of children that are operated by a mysterious source. So we are a cog in the great machine. beautiful is like Victor was so thrilled I mean he grew up on a lot of Anglo-Saxon pop culture like everybody around the world and to participate in it as a Latin musician he had a store of, of his own energy and expression that could take place here you know that could find a canvas that made sense so that's his creation and um, his buoyant spirit, you know, just intersecting the, an American idiom. My name is Blushing. You can hear my blood rushing. My name is Blushing. Following Child of God is the subtle and intimate beauty of the album's title track.
like I mentioned, perhaps that it kind of came from a love letter I'd written, and um, and it sort of cracked open into blood rushing. Um, it's sort of like uh, a moment of creation of somebody being born, which could be a character or a, or an idea. What's kind of magical about a song is you can relive um, these moments and and you can put yourself in the mind of when it first happened as if it was the first time, you know. And so when I wrote the words, my name is Blushing, uh, you can hear my blood rushing. You can hear my heart pumping. It, it sort of lit up my mind into a birth of sorts. And I think that's part of why I wanted to be an opera or is the escape from your own limited self and identifying with just being this one person. You know, it's always been fun to be Josephine, you know, but also it's sort of a invention of itself and can break into another reality. And so this, my name is Blushing was almost christening another person or something else that was coming out. In Colorado, did I begin and I begin again as like a rebirth. Genetics, which it's not only when you die that you're reborn, but during your life you are in a state of evolution or, you know, um, big changes can happen. So it's almost like when I do sing that song, it's very exciting. It's sort of a liberating feeling. I think Paz played both the bass and the violin. Most of the musicians I collaborate with, I'd say two-thirds of them, usually have a classical background that they have sort of shaken off. There's something about having a little background in certain harmonic sensibilities and a palette that's outside of popular music that I think is a kindred spirit with Pop, you know, and Victor too. Victor was studied in a monastery and Gregorian chant and all this when he was a kid. So there's certain things you don't need to talk about, but the the spirit of these people is totally wild. It's not like constricted and a very fluid improvisational and stuff. The spaciousness there and like not being afraid of space, not being afraid to have a, a sort of an empty space, which gives rise to more climatic. Like that's a very classical feeling. And then, as I say, I, I feel the dancer in that space.
wave of love is an achingly sweet number with a sparse arrangement that allows the focus to be on the beautiful and transcendent combination of Foster's vocals and Lynchanton's violin work. also came out of a sort of a love letter like actually when I write letters to people I often unwittingly am writing the song and I'll be like oh and I'll like pull up my guitar <laughs> like well I think this might be a song I'm sorry <laughs> um, and um, this is one like that it feels like sort of encapsulates my world view and my life experience was just um, all glory ever was with story after story of the wave of love and sort of always riding the crest of that wave. And um, Cobb, she's a surfer, you know. She was incredibly smitten with this song because she has all the experience of merging with the ocean. She was the violinist on this and she was incredibly inspired i just i would say that it was remarkable some moments of watching pause in action when she would be like okay i've got this idea you know and i would say this was she was hearing two parts she was so um inspired to record this overdub she was hearing it in her head it's very old-fashioned, like her parents come from this very romantic tradition of, of Argentinian music, and we're both deeply romantic souls, and so the, the fact that she could go into the song with such, you know, a total understanding, and I had no limits, I didn't have anything to say, it was like lovemaking in the sense of just you're completely merged in your imagination, you know. It's really tribute to her, um, this recording, because I think I recorded it by myself, and then she overdubbed it, her part on this one. Through the musical chemistry of the album's players, especially that of Foster and Herrero, the track O Stars radiates with its dynamic interweaving of sound 
invoking a sense of nocturnal celebration. I used to go up on the roof of uh, our little abode, which had, you know, the flat roof, and you could just lay up there and uh, look at the stars at night, which I really loved. I was just like, I really want to make a song that is sort of a song you sing at night, identifying constellations. I would just write these verses, but kind of with the idea that you could make infinite verses that could be improvised about many other constellations from any part of the world, you know. But I kind of knitted together ones that I was familiar with. I kind of spoke about like Cygnus and Orion and I wanted to add in some of the Native American ones that I have heard of. Kind of not being historically academic about it, but like First of all, I feel like looking at stars is a moral imperative, you know, that we should be looking at the stars and keeping a very cosmic perspective on our little planet. It's almost a travesty that people can't see the stars or that the city lights bedazzle us as a false heaven. guitar piece with Victor. He's a master guitarist and he's, you know, Spanish, but I'd say more than the Spanish tradition, he connects to the South American guitar, which is one of the most beautiful with so many different strains, but these indigenous forms of the guitar playing are incredible and he was at that time you know really absorbing and inspired by those so you hear that that's one of the most important parts of the song and then i think paul was playing some lovely little bit of indian flute in there which was awesome
as we near the end of the record, we get the aptly titled Geyser. Noisy and chaotic, the track's cacophony of sound thrills as it inches closer towards destruction, yet always remaining intact through the song's pulsating rhythms. I'll just sit in the room and just play or be very playful. And so often what I'm saying is pretty absurd. And this is, you know, pretty absurd. Like, fertile, I'm so fertile. I couldn't conceive of anything. But it is a sense of the mind being really open for any conception. And, and I think that part of this song is like, although I don't want to do a whole record of hard you know, blistering more rock songs because I find it too exhausting and it gives me a headache. But like one little song, it is still really good, you know, because I do have that part of me that does like a heavy song. This is a heavy theme of sort of relating that fertile mind to a geyser. I remember one curious kind of one of these weird happy accidents was like, I kept thinking the word phosphorus, you know, and I'm like, why is this phosphorus? And then I look it up and the geyser has phosphor in it. And I didn't know anything about that, you know? So again, it's like, who is really creating this stuff? You know, I don't know. <laughs> it's not, I'm not like reading National Geographic about geyser when I wrote this. I can't say that it's magic to write songs, but it's definitely um, not just me. You know, it was so fun because it was like, let's have this percolating feel, you know, and I would describe to the players like what I was feeling, you know, and of course they're so like incredibly sensitive players and they're so um, excitable by imagery and ideas. But I remember um, Victor was making this percolating on the guitar, and then I was like, oh, okay, how about we quote this, just the main theme? And then just carry it down a few octaves, just don't stop. And that was so cool. And then, like much of the record is a call and response. So, you know, I sang the line, fertile, I'm so fertile, I conceive of anything. And then sings it with me and she's got these very simple but very intelligently designed bass lines. Heather, she started wailing and she's got this weird violin. I believe it has a horn coming out, if I'm remembering right. And so it sort of has this very um, abrasive amplifier, you know. Take a violin and you put a horn on it and it's sort of brassy. And so she started wailing on that, too, which was cool. So we got just a lot of dissonant and lively sounds. So it just became a real party. Sweet little pearl in the waters of my mind. Sweet little pearl. Swim the waters of mankind Who was the sun? 
penultimate track is the dreamy procreation lullaby underwater daughter Under that tree, I was sitting on sort of from her point of view, you know, like I was pearls in her mind, and uh, how we all were these pearls from the water, you know. The story of every birth, every conception, is there was a someone fell in love with one of these pearls, these underwater daughters, and came forth to sing these songs about the conception of the mother and the side. <laughs> you know, it's sort of like if you think of the old theater pieces and they're like, okay, now we need you know, a backdrop of this, somebody paints it, you know, and it's the thing in my mind is coming to life sonically. And, you know, I'll be like, we need this this watery sound. And Andrea had brought the guitar and amp and, you know, he'd get back there and with Victor and they'd find the sound and Victor could paint this warbly, watery feeling, you know. And so it's sort of old-fashioned you know, radio show plays. The album ends with the laid-back and playful Words Come Loose, featuring soulful guitar lines, subtle percussive flourishes, and 60s girl group-like backing vocals. The track exudes a sense of warmth and togetherness, and nicely concludes Blood Rushing.
voice of beautiful violin harp by Heather, kind of going way up high, and she did some sort of harmonic thing, because I was like, can we get that sense of like somebody really woozy and like, you know, sort of out of body experience and like dreading return <laughs> to the body? <laughs> and she really got it, she nailed it. Yeah, this one actually is kind of animated. It's a sort of absurd trickster song. Um, I kind of thought this was the one song that maybe came through Blushing's father, who I called generous to a fault. <laughs> but, um, and it's sort of like somebody just slept in the summer sun, you know, and they woke up to that awful feeling of sort of hungover and kind of maybe they spoke too loosely. And <laughs> it's sort of like a lesson has been learned, you know, and it's sort of comical, which I like to include in my music, the element of humor, you know, is very welcome. So it's sort of an absurd song of um, contrition, you know, breaking up the party, final little dance, I guess. Wishing to convey some of the record's thematic elements through its album art, Foster paints the image of a red waterfall surrounded by stars. Well, I was inspired by Japanese art in the sense of there's a lot of... uh, nature art, in particular waterfall art. So I also wanted to do a bit of a deconstruction of the American flags in my own way. So it is a sort of a reconfiguration of the um, stars and stripes. But uh, I think it has a lot of strange angles to it. At the time, I was reading uh, Hodorowski and um, different people, and um, I actually put some of my own blood in the red. So it's actually a bit of my blood in the painting, which is kind of interesting in retrospect. I didn't think it was a big deal, but now I kind of like it more. (laughs) It's like, weird. (laughs) Um, That was a strange thing, you know. Um, But yeah, I'm an amateur artist, to be sure. um, But somehow it's rather pleasing how it turned out. Fire Records releases Blood Rushing on September 18th, 2012. And though Foster would be grateful for the reception it received, the album did not quite reach the American audience for which she had hoped. I feel like there was a real nice reception. Uh, I'd say that overall, this album and many of my albums, I feel because I lived abroad during so many years, I feel that this is an album meant for American audiences in its heart and soul, Mm -hmm. you know, and I feel like that's been maybe the sacrifice of living abroad and uh, having a British label. I don't feel my records are paid attention to here as much as if I was touring here. And of course, we had a number of problems during my partnership with Victor with his visa and I think that um, diminished the um, contribution I would like to make in my own home country um, to be frank I don't think I toured it hard in it at all in the States which is kind of crazy I think I did one performance in Boulder in this uh, church 
which after we recorded it, we did one performance and before I um, returned back the separate ways, we had an unusual invitation to um, bring the whole recorded uh, crew from the record to play um, one live show. That's all we've ever all played completely all together um, with all five of us. And that was in Sicily, that uh, they loved the record and wanted us all to come and perform it at the Greek-Roman theater there in um, Catania, and um, where there's sort of an old ruin theater kind of partially submerged in the water. And um, Ben and Heather were in the state, so we blew them over for like two days. <laughs> it's kind of the other three of us were already overseas. So it was just very beautiful some touring in uh, Japan, they they did it. The Japanese love this record. There was a really wonderful response to it. <laughs> but it's sort of absurd because it's really one of the most American records I've made. <laughs> I don't know. A little over a year after its release, Foster would follow up Blood Rushing with I'm a Dreamer and has continued a steady release of consistently great material with her most recent record being 2020's excellent No Harm Done. Like all great idiosyncratic artists, Foster has spent her career charting her own path of individuality, marked by a deep respect for what has come before and a willing desire to connect. The album Blood Rushing is a true evocation of this spirit. I love this record because it's really real. It's what I was living. It was incredibly hard to make in the sense that there was very little money. We were very crushed by time. Andrea drove 17 hours straight to get there. We just in the last minute found this place to record because everything sort of was falling apart. I was trying to hold everybody's faith in it because, you know, when you don't have a lot of money, People are contributing by the grace of their generosity. But I feel like people really, really dedicated themselves to something that depended on a collective effort, you know. And it's, I feel like it's a blueprint to me of how I want to live. I want to live in the outdoors as much as possible, singing with people celebrating nature so it's it's i completely believe in this record you know there's nothing false in it thanks for listening to in loving recollection a very special thanks to josephine foster for speaking with me about this very special record you can stream and buy Blood Rushing or more from Foster at josephinefoster.info, various streaming platforms, and firerecords.com. Seek this stuff out. It'll make you a better person. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter or at inlovingrecollection.com. We'll see you next time. We'll get through this. <laughs>